Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brant. And this episode, we're discussing SST79, our first Firehose album, Raging Full On. And this is a huge record for Brant and I, and we're going to try and exercise some restraint. We're probably going to gush a fair amount, um, but we'll hopefully avoid a bit of the gushing because we have a special guest on the show, Brant. I would go so far, Ryan, as to say a very special guest. I agree. Yeah, I agree. It's Ed from Ohio. Ed Crawford is on the show today. We tracked him down. We found Ed. The kid. Yep. The kid. The kid, as Watt used to refer to him. The kid. Yep. It's great. It's a really great interview, too. We did this. We've been sitting on this for a couple months. We did it a couple months ago, and I've been really excited to bring it to people. I haven't heard it for since we recorded it, and uh, I listened to it before we we did the episode so I could remind myself of what, what we talked about, and man, is it ever a great interview. Yeah. Pretty much like if you want to find out anything about how it started from the horse's mouth, like literally, like the the actual dude who had the gonads to go and do this, we've got Ed. So it's very cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. And a nice guy. Very nice. I've only got one quick spiel though, Brent, because I want to get into fire hose. Um, I'm just going to mention real quick, you know, I'm a fan of that band called The Moving Targets with Kenny Chambers and old Tang Records band. I do know that. Yep. They've got a crowdfunding thing going on for a new record by them. That's hmm. called Wires. And you can find it on Indiegogo. It's a, like a crowdfunding thing. You can back the record. And okay. um, it would come out later this year. So I would encourage people to check that out if you like, you know, the stuff that we like on this show. The first two Moving Targets records in particular, like, are just insane. They totally hold up. Kenny Chambers can sing like nobody's business. You just know what's going to be a good record. So people should check that out. Will do. What about you, Brent? I've got, well, I've got an update. This is a Craig Unkrich, Mr. California update. Ooh, nice. From the Zoogs episode. Yep. Heart Attack, the song, I, I think I was talking about how it was a, a good song that I liked. If you remember, that's the song that he's playing live when John Truby is at a gig and he's accosted by an annoying dude. <laughs> yeah. So I said that Heart Attack appears on Obscure Independent Classics, Volume 1, I think it is. Craig let us know that it is also one of the main tunes on Amputees in Limbo. He calls it the hit single of sorts. So we'll have to watch for that. He also mentioned on the back cover of, we were speculating about who who all was on the back cover. Right. Of... With all the ties, uh, all the ties, hair, and sunglasses. Right. So we've got Zoog's Rift, Scott Colby, Craig Unkrich, Ed O'Brien, John Sharkey, Rich Haas, and Willie Lapin. John Truby is not in the photo. Oh, no way. Yep. And the photo was shot in Craig's driveway in Silmar, California. But here, Ryan, is, here's the gold that I got from Craig Unkrich. I got an update on BZ Remhod units. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. 
Beezy Red Remhod and Prunkty, which I believe is a word that is in the dead wax on that album. It totally is. These are nonsensical words invented by John Truby. Any so, word on Buttram? No. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> I'm just happy I know, well, I guess I don't know what a BZ Remhod unit is, but I, I suppose only John Truby knows. Well, now that I know that Prunkty is made up, I'll sleep better at night. Yeah. And I've got a little, I guess, recommend slash thank you for related to our episode tonight. Eric Vermillion, who was in a band called the Steel Miners and a band called the Stump Wizards, both bands I'm fan, I'm a fan of. They were both on Get Hip. Yeah, Stump Wizards. Stump Wizards are really great. Yeah. There was a, a time I bought anything that said Get Hip on it. I still do for the most part. Uh, Eric was also in Gumball with Don Fleming. Yeah, man. Who was, who was in uh, Velvet Monkeys, uh, Ball with Jay Spiegel. Love Ball. Great shimmy yes. disc band. Yes, they are really good. Uh, both of those dudes, or sorry, Eric was in a band called Food in 2012. With Ed, man. With Ed, Ed Crawford and a guy named Mike Quinlan, who they say played in the Cynics. I can't find, as you know, Ryan, I've got everything with the word Cynics on it. And I can't find what release he played on, but they have um, an EP with the band Food called Four Pieces from Candyland, which you'll hear Ed mention in the interview. It's great. Yeah, it is good. And Eric also has a new band called The Full Counts. They have an album called First Out uh, with Don Fleming and Mike Quinlan and a guy named Ethan Winograd. And that release and the food release is on a label called Fratry Records, P-H-R. R-A-T-R-Y Records out of Cincinnati. Yep. Are you familiar with the label, Ryan? It seems like there's some bands on there that you would be a fan of. Oh yeah, man. I've ordered from them plenty and I've got that Full Counts record. They've even got a documentary coming out with Ed from Ohio in it. That's what I was going to mention. It premiered on March 29th and it's a documentary about the label and the trailer for it has Ed Crawford playing acoustically on it. And the dude can sing still, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, wow. What I didn't know when I was kind of, I wanted to spiel about what, what all bands these guys played in. Did you know that Don Fleming, you probably didn't know this, Don Fleming and Jay Spiegel played in Dinosaur Jr. very briefly? I did not know that actually. They played on the track, The Wagon. Oh, okay. Like the, it was released, I, th I it must've been before the album Green Mind was released as a seven inch on Sub Pop. And they, they were like, I'm assuming like the rhythm section. Huh. But then again, didn't Jay play drums on, uh, on Green Mind? Green Mind? Yeah. Yeah. I thought Jay played like, well, I guess was Mike Johnson in the band by then? I think Jay played drums on Green Mind. I think you're right. I don't know. I can't remember for sure, but is the Wagon 7 inch a different recording than the full length version? Do you know that? Okay, I've got in my hand the Dinosaur Jr. The Wagon single. I don't recall it being different sounding. The first song includes, is what it says, Don Fleming, guitar, backing vocals, Murph, drums, Jay Spiegel, toms, 
all other all other <laughs> tracks played by Jay Mascus. That's what it says okay. on the single. Hang on. So Jay Spiegel just played the toms. Well, so says the liner. <laughs> I don't remember the track The Wagon being hev- heavy on the toms. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see here. They re-released Green Mind a while back, and I think I only have the re-release. Uh, the Wagon was track number one. Basically, it says produced, performed, and written by Jay Mascus, Murph on drums, tracks one, seven, and nine. And then it says, uh, yeah, Don Fleming, guitar on track one, Jay Spiegel. So, I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it's the same version. It, I don't remember it sounding different to me, and the credits are the same on the single and the LP, so there you go. All right, mystery solved. Yeah, man. But people should really check out Fratry Records. Um, I caught wind of them a while back specifically for that Food 12-inch. I thought I played that for you at some point, too. And yeah, yeah, you did. Yep. It's good. People should check it out. If you're a fan of Firehose, it's great. It just, I just wish that, uh, I wish Ed was singing on more music these days because he can. he still has the pipes and that guy should put together a band and put out an LP right now. Yeah. Well, should we let Ed do the talking? Definitely. Ed, why don't you spiel it for the dudes? History lesson, part one. Okay, so we're talking to Ed Crawford today. Ed, how are you doing? Doing real good, thanks. How are you? Very well, thank you. I'm curious about where you you grew up, Ed. Did you grow up in Ohio? Uh, yeah, in a little town called uh, Toronto, Ohio, like uh, like Canada, but not. Right. A small town, about 7,000 people, right on the Ohio River. Okay. Is it close to a big city? Oh, uh, not a big city. The closest city is Pittsburgh, uh, okay. Pennsylvania, which is where I live now. Right. And were you playing in bands when you were growing up, like in high school? No, just uh, I was a trumpet player uh, up, until, uh, up until college, pretty much. Like in high school band? Oh yeah, yeah. I was, uh, yeah. I took private lessons. I was had a scholarship to go to a real good uh, brass program here at Carnegie Mellon University. Oh. I turned that down. Uh, yeah, I was just uh, didn't want to be a trumpet player at some point. And, uh, next thing you know, I was uh, going to punk rock shows. <laughs> Were you, was this like jazz or were you playing in like the marching band at school? Yeah, yeah, marching band. Um, yeah, we call it stage band, but like a jazz band, um, pit orchestra, whatever, whatever we had, pep band, yeah, any band they had, I was in. And then you mentioned you got into punk rock. Is that the reason you started playing guitar? No, I'd always played guitar. There was uh, both of my brothers had a guitar. Um, so there was always one laying around the house and I eventually figured out how to play the thing and uh, then I got my own when I was about 12 or 13 and, uh, yeah, I just, um, I never really paid attention to that played along with, uh, James Taylor records or whatever. Right. But, uh, no, never any bands with a guitar, no, uh, sounds like you came from a musical family. Oh yeah, my my dad was the uh, band director in our town. Oh okay. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, he, uh, there was a lot of music in the house. Yes, yeah. very much so. And you said older brothers. 
Yeah, two yeah. older brothers. Yeah. Right, so they obviously probably had a big influence too as far as what kind of music they were bringing into the house? Yeah, for sure. They were, uh, one's five years older and the other's ten years older. Oh, okay. So, and I, you know, I was born in 64. So, yeah, I, there was, there was like Indigata DeVita was in the house. There was, uh, you know, Elton John, uh, you name it, Black Sabbath you know, anything that was going around. So, yeah, I, I heard most of the popular stuff, but I didn't know anything about punk rock until much later, like in the early 80s, you know. I, I really missed a lot of the punk rock uh, heyday, as it were. Right, so maybe less of, like, the Sex Pistols and the Clash and more of, like, the 80s stuff? Yeah, yeah, I, that's that's when I got turned on to it, when I got to... Uh, Ohio State University, my roommate was from New York City, actually Queens. Okay. And he was very much into punk rock, and uh, he turned me on to uh, pretty much the whole scene, uh, A to Z. Uh, okay. So I was very fortunate that like, I got a crash course in it, as it were. And did you Everything start Did you start going to shows Judas, at this? Judas, MC5, you know, every, all the way up to, you know, sure, Pistols, Buzzcocks, you name it, you uh, Right, and what about like the hardcore stuff? Yeah, the, again, that that uh, more I, I learned more about that once I got out to LA and right. uh, moved out to Southern Cal, and uh, yeah, so then I, I was mostly into SST bands, basically. So, yeah. were you going to shows in Ohio when you were oh, in university? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, saw the Minutemen twice. Uh, Husker Du a couple of times, uh, Camper Van Beethoven. Yeah, we had a pretty good venue, so anything that was uh, on tour worth going to see, I'd go see it. Yeah, this was sure. on campus? Yeah, real close to campus. Like uh, in Columbus, where the university set uh, uh, right next to uh, the it's called Broad Street, and uh, that's where all the uh, restaurants and uh, you know boutique stores and uh, they had two two clubs that uh, were there at the time one larger and one just a small punk rock club. Okay, what about local stuff? Any standouts there? Yeah, there was some good stuff happening uh, in Columbus at the time. Really good uh, band trio uh, called Scrawl. Okay. Uh, three chicks that were really great. Um, yeah, but uh, nothing really that really ever broke large. I don't think. Maybe a bit more like Cleveland. Yeah, yeah. a lot more stuff came out yeah. of Cleveland for yeah. sure. I mean, like Perubu, you know, etc. Right. Um, yeah, but Columbus yeah. was yeah not much of a real hot music town. It yeah. was good record stores though. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, good record stores. That helps. Yeah, that helped. And the legend is that it was Camper Van Beethoven who you mentioned that told you that Mike Watt and George Hurley were auditioning guitarists for a new band. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Talking with the bass player, uh, Bill, Bill Krumenacher, and I just happened to ask just a couple months after D. Boone died, I said, you know, well, what do you guys, you know, you know the Minutemen, what's up with them? Have you heard anything? He said, I don't know. I heard he's auditioning guitar players, hmm. and uh, of course I didn't know. You know, 
they're from like Northern Cal, which is way different than Southern California. <laughs> they would have a uh, very, very little idea of what was happening. So, yeah, they just, just on that and uh, decided to ring him up. <laughs> oh, so you phoned him first. Yeah, yeah, I called Mark. Uh, actually, my buddy dialed the phone. This was back in the day when you, you, if you, your phone was listed, you could just call up information and right. get somebody's phone number. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, just you know, called him up, and he actually picked up. <laughs> and uh, we just started talking, one thing led to another. So then, does he invite you out, or do you just go out on a whim? I more or less invited myself out. He right. basically wound up the conversation. He did most of the talk. Yeah. Uh, you know what? That's the way the conversation goes. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, he winds, winds up the conversation and says, well, you sound like a nice enough kid and everything. Why don't you just send me a tape and get back with you? And, of course, like, I hadn't been in a band before, so I don't have any tapes or anything. So I said, well, um, I had a good friend of mine who lived in the Southern Cal, and uh, she had been inviting me out to come stay. So uh, I was like, well, I, I've got a friend of mine. I can come out and stay, and I'll, I'll give you a call when I get out there. Okay. And he said, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. And uh, I'm sure he expected to never hear from me again. But uh, about two weeks later, sure enough, I'm in L.A., uh, and I uh, called him up and ignored me for about a week, and then I ran <laughs> out of money. <laughs> Gave him one last call, left him one last message. And then he calls me right back and says, okay, when's your flight? Um, okay, I'll pick you up to take you to the airport. You can come down and jam before you leave. Okay. So he picked me up, went down to Pedro to his apartment. We jammed for a couple hours, and he said, okay, kid, when you can move out. And that was how the band started, pretty much. It was just the two of you jamming? Yeah, just me and him. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't really playing much at all. He was recording some with uh, Sonic Youth, as I would call. But right. he didn't have anything happening. Uh, he hadn't really talked to George a whole lot. Hmm. Um, they, they were in touch, but they weren't playing or nothing. Right. Uh, they didn't know what to do. Um, yeah. yeah, after we I moved out there, we just uh, practiced in his apartment. Um I actually moved in underneath of his, uh, back in those days, computers took up a good bit of space. So he had a computer <laughs> desk, right. which was big enough that I could sleep underneath of it. Because he had a really tiny apartment with a Murphy bed. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I just slept underneath of his uh, desk there. And until I got good enough, we had wrote a couple of songs and uh, run some Minutemen stuff. And he said, okay, I'm calling Georgie. And called George up and we got together Mike rented a uh, practice spot up at Angel's Gate and uh, yeah George said yeah okay let's do this so well. <laughs> that was the name of that too so no reservations on your part about moving out to Pedro no I just no I'm 22 years old it was the most exciting thing I'd ever done in my life yeah were they like I've never been west of uh, Toledo really <laughs> <laughs> The Minutemen were, I'm assuming, one of your, you know, oh my one God, of your yeah, I was, bands. I was a giant. I mean, I could play along with Double Nickels on a Dime, uh, pretty much song for song. You know, by that point, I had bought an electric guitar because I, like, yeah. After seeing the Minutemen, I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do right, right there. <laughs> and was that, that was guitar a Telly? 
I know that's mostly what you played, yeah, right? Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a parts guitar. Um, a guy in Columbus built it for me. Um, nothing fancy, just your basic Telecaster. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I had with me. Didn't even own an amplifier when I moved <laughs> out there. So. <laughs> you guys jammed on some Minutemen songs when you when you first got together with George? Yeah, sure yeah. did. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, most of our... Uh, until we wrote some more material, uh, we had probably four or five originals, and then the rest of the set would be uh, Minutemen tunes. Okay. Uh, Anxious Mofo, stuff like this. Uh, Do you know what the what the originals might have been? Do you remember? Like the first ones that you uh, wrote? He had a lot of lyrics. He gave me some lyrics, and he had some that George had given him. Okay. And so he just gave me those and said, uh, can you write songs? And I lied, and I said, sure. <laughs> I've never <laughs> written a song before in my life. But I, yeah, I just sat down and I you know, started writing some lyrics and uh, of my own, came up with a few tunes. And, uh, yeah, but Mike was already making some four tracks. He had the, one, of the, uh, one of these cassette uh, four-track recorders. Okay. They'd just come out, portable very convenient and really good sound and uh, he was laying down uh, demos and just ha- handed me a tape on uh, like it'd be four or five uh, watt songs on there um, yeah stuff like under the influence me puppets largely um, he just have the bass line and just right. give me that to work up of. sometimes he'd have the guitar part and I'd make chemical wire that's his guitar part okay um, Stuff like that, yeah. But other other stuff, he just gave me the baseline and let me have at it. And uh, yeah, I think that was very successful on a lot of levels. Absolutely. So the the songs on this album that are credited to Crawford and Hurley, would those have been ones where George had some lyrics and you just took them away and and wrote some music to them? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would just come up with a guitar part and. Uh, you know, play it for Watt, he'd come up with a bass part, and then we'd show it to George, and uh, we'd be off. uh, Was the Dose EP out yet? They had just finished that up. In fact, he was mixing that, I believe, right before I got there. Okay. uh, Yeah, they were doing some gigs at the time around town. So, yeah, right around that time, yeah. You do have a couple songs credited only to you, I think choose any memory and this. I, I was going to ask if you brought those songs with you when you moved out, but it sounds like you maybe wrote no. them while you were there. Yeah, no, I wrote them when I, like I said, I'd never written a song before in my life on a guitar or anything else. It did you was, uh, Did you surprise yourself? Be, it was in the job description. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not something you consider added. trying, I guess, eh? Before that? Well, no, I just never had any reason to. You know, I didn't have any great use or you know to write songs I uh, just uh, had this opportunity to play with my favorite what was left of my favorite band in the world you know I was right. I loved the Minuteman and then all of a sudden I'm playing with Mike and George it was just surreal so I was like yeah I'll, I'll write songs okay <laughs> is that what I gotta do <laughs> I'll do it 
you weren't it wasn't daunting at all you well, know the whole thing to, was pretty daunting yeah. i mean you gotta understand those are huge shoes to be filled yeah and i couldn't think of it like that because i mean mike and george were just so supportive and just you know, they wanted me to succeed as much as I wanted to succeed. You know, and I worked real hard. I wasn't no great shakes when I moved out there, uh, guitar-wise. You know, uh, I could play along with the record, but that's a little different than playing with Mike and George. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so I I did a lot of uh, there was a pretty steep learning curve there for a while, but uh, there was just so much energy. You know, there was no work to it. It was just uh, you know, it was absolutely uh, you know. Uh, just yeah, it was a a work of joy. If anything, man, you know, you never thought of it. And we took it, you know, we practiced till Fridays a week, ten o'clock till noonish, one o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, if we weren't playing, and we started playing pretty quickly. Yeah, right out. I mean, we hadn't practiced together with George more than a couple of weeks till we played our first gig. Yeah, I have it as June and we, June of '86, so that would have been pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just—I mean, we were off and running because you know Mike still had, uh, um, or George had just bought a van. Okay. And uh, we were ready to go, and we had shows all up around down LA, up down the coast, because people wanted to hear these cats. They were, you know, with with you know, especially amongst club owners, you know, the Minutemen were pretty well respected. Yeah. Did you they get real, did you get support you know, from the fans? Uh, yeah, for the lot by and large. I yeah. think they wanted there to be some success there, but it was definitely not what anybody expected. I pissed off a lot of Minutemen fans for sure. Hmm. Um but uh because, you know, I, I couldn't be D. Loon. I wasn't yeah. trying to be. I mean, that was not a, an option. So yeah. I just did the best I could. And, uh, it was very, just very uh, organic sort of process. What let me be me. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was pretty intense. That's the best word for it. It was really intense. Yeah. A whole lot of fun. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you, it, t- it takes huge balls on your part to to do what you did so it's it's an amazing tale so when you're going up and down the coast like this are you at this point are you making a conscious effort to try and be your own thing and like not do any Minutemen songs or are you still doing Minutemen stuff in your set well we would always do uh, their cover of uh, Red and the Black that's about the only thing that ended up remaining from that I mean once we had our own set full of uh, original material and they, they went by the wayside. I mean, it was a lot of fun playing that stuff, too, you know. You know, the Minutemen stuff, before we had a whole set of our own, that was a lot of fun to play. Yeah, <laughs> I can for sure. You. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, you know, it was a perfect transition because they didn't come to see Firehose, they came to see what Mike and George from the Minutemen are doing now. Right. You know, and, uh, so yeah, we gave him a little bit of that and a little bit what was to become. <laughs> what about a song like this? Would you play that live, just you on stage? Oh hell no, 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 no. something like that. No. Um, later on, I would do maybe after if there was a, you know, we did two encores and they would still wanted more. What would send me out and I'd go do in memory of Elizabeth right. Cotton just by myself. 
you mentioned that you had just gotten an electric guitar when you went out there. Were you playing like a, an acoustic? The reason I ask yeah. is there's a lot of Spanish sounding guitar at, at times on the album, say uh-huh. on the candle and the flame. Is that so? That was something you had you'd already been been playing. Yeah, I mean, I like I had let's see, around about high school, I, I got a little more serious about playing acoustic guitar, and I bought a really nice Martin a D35. A lot of that first record, uh, it's all over that. Yeah. In fact, I doubled most of the electric parts with uh, the acoustic. Oh, really? Most of the rhythm. If you listen real close, you can always hear some acoustic mix. Okay. Listen for that for sure. I've listened to the album a thousand times or more. and It's mixed in there kind of low, but uh, I told Ethan James, our producer, like, I'm putting pretty much acoustic on everything, man. You're like, you are, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But it's, it's weird because it created a sound because it's so subtle, you don't really notice it unless you're really listening to it. People don't realize a lot of their favorite classic rock bands did that, like The Who and The Stones. They doubled a my, lot of that, that stuff. That was my, my intention. I was, uh, that was my ringing to it from... Exactly, the Who, yeah. Townsend always. It's had a big part of the sound. A lot of that stuff is acoustic. Yeah, a lot of it. And uh, yeah, I took that from directly from Townsend and the Who thing. Um, I think we had a lot of success with it. Yeah. Um, like stuff like Brave Captain, which when I gave it to Watt was just it's kind of a mid-tempo, but uh, he's he listened to it a couple of times. He said, you know what, just speed that up, and that's going to be a great song. Right, yeah. So you mentioned Ethan James. So this was produced by he and Watt and engineered by Ethan James at Radio Tokyo. According to the album's liner notes, in 29 29 hours between October 14th and 27th of 86. What do you remember about those sessions? Oh, God, they were just... uh, Well, I've never been in a recording studio I was going to ask, yeah. Pretty much an eye-opener that way. Yep. (laughs) But no, Ethan could have been a sweeter guy. I mean, just... You really, you know, he knew how to treat a 20-year-old kid. Cause he, he was in Blue Cheer. He had been in the business for a, a while, right. even by then. And uh, he had this little house down by Venice Beach, just an old house that he converted the bottom floor into a, a studio, and it was just a great-sounding studio. Uh, he had a really good board, uh, good gear, good outboard gear. Yeah, and it was just, we practice our asses off so we went in you know it wasn't like oh we have pieces of songs you we had, went you had your shit just, dialed yeah. we were nailing shit like uh, oh god I mean one after the other yeah we did a lot of the stuff on first or second takes um, and overdubs took far longer to get down but we just nailed all the basic tracks right away because Mike and George were professionals you know by this point I mean, they had done this a while. Yeah. They knew their way, and they knew Ethan real well, the studio and such. But, uh, yeah, they made it as comfortable and, you know, unawkward for me as possible. It was a beautiful thing, man. It was. It's a great-sounding album. A, a lot of that stuff on it, on SST, especially from that era, sounds can sound dated at times. To me, yeah. you know, the, the recording and the mix of this album are still hold up for me. 
Oh, yeah. All, all the production on the SST stuff has uh, just very unique, like yeah. especially the stuff Spot did. Yeah. Um, you know, and Ethan, just really unique stuff sound-wise. But, uh, yeah, we also, we also shared a lot of the same uh, recording. Let's see, there was a place in Redondo. I can't remember the name of it, but a lot of that stuff was uh, recorded in... Total, yeah, total access. Maybe you're thinking of that was used a yeah, lot. Yeah, around that area, a lot of them bands were, you know, all centrally located. Descendants, yeah. Flag, us, a lot of those bands. Are you also a part of like the SST orbit by this point? Are you hanging out at SST when you're when you're off the road? Yeah, it was a pretty it was a pretty tight knit community even even by the time I got there, which um, at which time Flag had broken up. Right, yeah. Um, Milo went to college, so there was no more descendants that had turned into all. Okay. Greg Ginn was doing uh, Gone at this point. I don't know what Dukowski was doing. I think he was just, I think he was running SST. Yeah. <laughs> Greg, Greg really wasn't too much of a running the, uh, <laughs> running with the label sort of a guy. Okay. He was more of a, uh, yeah. He'd rather go to a dead show. He'd <laughs> um, go buy the record, uh, you know, where they sent out. Remember, this was mail order days. A lot of their shit was mail order. Good deal of it. And, um, yeah, we'd go down there and hang out and uh, see what's happening. We always had something, some kind of business with Greg or Chuck. Right. Um, or Mugger. Um, yeah, because, you know, we would coordinate all of our goings on with the label it was very you know still you know just to show up down there have a word you didn't have to make an appointment you know it was very loose and very cool so then by the end of 86 this album's out yeah i think i read somewhere that you went out with sonic youth it was that after ifin came out or was it in between do you remember no that would have been our very first tour okay so yeah, I, I would say, let's see, I can't remember, it was called the um, Flaming Telepath Tour. No. Right. Yeah, the Flaming Telepath Tour. Okay. And it was, they had just put out Sister, and we had just put out Ragin', so uh, yeah, that would have been the same time. Yeah. Two really strong albums with a nice package. Yeah, and yeah. that was their very last van tour. And they took us out. It was just unbelievable checking those guys out night after night. It was a mind blower. I bet. Yeah. You know, their their records are one thing, but to see them do that shit live was just mind boggling. You know. And uh, yeah, all all four of them just the sweetest people. You know that you ever want to meet. Real pleasure to, for your first rock and roll tour or punk rock, whatever you want to call it. That's a pretty good one to be on. No kidding. <laughs> Got you in front awesome. of a lot of people, I bet. Yeah, there's a uh, really... I, I got to make the uh, the T-shirt design for that tour. And um, I read there was a coffee table book somewhere about rock and roll T-shirts, you know, and it's like all great glossy pages and, you know, it's like a coffee table book. Right. And I was flipping through it, and I was like, oh, my God, there's that T-shirt from that tour. <laughs> I couldn't believe no that the one that still exists. <laughs> it was a weird thing. 
So we recently uh, were talking about the Slovenly debut on SST, and I'd been talking to Steve Anderson from that band, and he mentioned that you guys did a lot of touring with them as well. Yeah, we sure did, man. Yeah. Slovenly, great band. Yeah. Another really good um, fit musically too. Oh yeah, yeah. Mike had a you know a lot of connects from from Minutemen still, you know, obviously. And uh, yeah, he stayed in touch with all those cats. So when Chip and Tony from the Dills, they did Blackbird. Uh, we did uh, shows with them. Yeah, we, we played with some pretty uh, pretty cool bands. <laughs> LA. I think I saw somewhere you played close to a thousand shows as a band, so I'm sure you played with tons and tons of amazing bands. Yeah, we we yeah we were doing shows at uh, you know the Whiskey with like X and uh, oh god we one show we were doing what was it uh, us Boosters and Meat Puppets. Wow. When the Flaming Telepaths tour went through Texas. We did three shows with the Buttholes. We called that the Sonic Buttfire portion <laughs> of the tour. And, uh, yeah, I've never seen them live before. That was a mind-blower. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. What was that it like was for you to go out on tour? At, was that... Oh. Where, how how did you wrap your head around that? Just well, go again, for it? when you're 22, you, know, you just sort of find out about shit anyhow. So this seemed normal to me as anything. Yeah. You liked it? You yeah. you handled it okay? Yeah, I mean, there's a camaraderie that develops. I mean, you get to be a family. I mean, it, we we were fortunate that we liked each other a lot, you know. Yeah. There was always some, uh, you stay in a van for any length of time. You get on each other's nerves about something. But we all loved each other very much. It was obvious. We we knew we were, we were on to something pretty good. And we just, you know... But you get into a state of mind, it's like us against the world, man. You know, you're doing 30, 40 shows in a row, no days off. It's like, you know, every day it's like us against the world, and you got to get it done. Yeah. And we always took our own sound guy. We were always, we knew that was had to be, because you go to a club, what the hell are they going to do with us? You know, we're all over the place. Yeah. (laughs) So we always had our own sound guy. A consistent and, guy or different guys? Um, yeah, well, I think we went through uh, two. Oh, that's not bad. <laughs> yeah, Dave Lowe, who had worked with extensively oh, right, with Flag, yeah. Um, yeah. and then uh, we found Steve Reed, and he, he instantly became the fourth member of the family. Steve was the best, and just good people to have around, and you want that on tour. Yeah, and that's it? Yeah. Never any merch merch person or anybody yeah, doing eventually uh, well we do our own merch you know and after a while we were the merch was making as much if not more than the gig was yep <laughs> yeah so so then we got a merch guy yeah yeah <laughs> yeah two or three we, we had different merch people yeah but that that was after those two three years after that yeah well i was telling you earlier i've actually saw you play at the club that i book at with southern culture on the skids how long oh, were, yeah. how long were you with them? Uh, about on and off about thirteen years. Oh really? Yeah. How did that uh, yeah, come about, out? No, actually, uh, more like about ten years. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, they I was living in Chapel Hill, and that's where they're from. I just happened to run into Rick Miller one night at the bar, and he knew who I was, and he was like, "Hey, what's up, man? What are you doing?" I'm like, ah, oh, you know. 
just farting around, got a day job, nothing. And he's like, well, hey, man, we need a merch guy and a driver. You want to come work with me? I was like, oh, hell yeah, I know how to do that. <laughs> I'm good at that. I yeah. can drive a van all damn day, no problem. And a really awesome so, band, too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, great people. They're still my dearest friends. We, we got to be real close. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, I started out as their merch guy, driver, roadie, and then uh, eventually they fired their keyboard player, so I did some rhythm guitar for them and played a little trumpet on two or three songs. Right. That's all the trumpet I've ever played after, after I put it down. Never played it in Firehose? No, hell no. I no. never even thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You played with Whiskey Town for a while? Yeah, I did for about six months. Okay. Was, uh, right before he went absolutely solo. Because he had fired his whole band, um, and he had, they had like four tours, three or four tours booked. Okay. So he kept Caitlin, Caitlin Carey, the violin, hired back the original drummer, Skillet, and me and my, at the time, girlfriend, bass player, Jenny Steiner. Okay. And uh, we did, uh, we, we, we were pretty good at doing them Whiskey Towns. Uh, there's a, uh, we did an Austin City Limits recording. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Do you know if it's, it's on YouTube? Uh, you, you can, yeah, you can go pbs.org, I think it's on there. Oh. It's, it's not half bad, I'll tell you. I'll be checking that out for pretty sure. Good, pretty good, pretty good band. What else did you do musically? I know you were in a few other bands after Firehose. Oh, uh, let's see. Well, uh, I did Grand National. Uh, that's the first thing I did when I got to, uh, to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, when I moved there. Yeah, we actually did some shows opening up for uh, Southern Culture in Matherfact. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, we just played mostly up and down the East Coast as far as we could drive, you know, on the weekends. And let's see, and then when I moved here to Pittsburgh, I did a band called Food, right? which is an acronym for Far Out Old Dudes. <laughs> They're just a three-piece. Uh, we put out an EP a couple years ago. Um, we toured around quite a bit and uh, lost our bass player, and that kind of just, I put that on the back burner for now. And I'm just farting around with a couple of ideas I haven't really decided on what I want to do next. You know, I'm remaining flexible, exercising <laughs> my options. Yeah, yeah that's it. Sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, you did You did do a brief Firehose reunion as well. Yeah, we sure did. That was amazing. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. That was a really just a blast. Because I'd been harping one. I was like, God damn it, what? What the hell? Why aren't we playing? Everybody else is playing. Yeah. Meat puppets are playing. Why can't we play? So that was your, yeah. you that was pushing for that, maybe? Yeah. Anytime Walk comes around where I am, I go out and we, well, you know, I watch his show and uh, we play Red and the Black together and then I yep. harp him about, God damn it. Why aren't we playing? <laughs> no, just the right opportunity came along, right time, because. Uh, he had mentioned to uh, our, our uh, booking agent, Steve Call, that we might be, a, you know, if the right right shows came around. He said, "Well, I got an offer. I got an offer from Wallapalooza. It's pretty nice 
Vegas off, or you could do a West Coast tour around that, and you all could make a few dollars. Yep. That sounded pretty good. And he hadn't played with George occasionally, once in a while, but he hadn't even played with George in a while. So I hold my ass back out there. <laughs> we practiced <laughs> for a week. Yep. And uh, then we did uh, a couple of Coachella shows, and uh, about, I think 10 shows up and down the West Coast. Wow. And, uh, yeah, that was just a, a, just a blast. It was really good. Like we hadn't quit done, you know, doing it. Had right. the same sound guy. Uh, it was really cool. When I asked you to do this, you mentioned to me that you're, you know, not really online a whole lot and you're, you know, you're not on Facebook, et cetera. But I can tell you, I'm sure you hear about, hear this from people all the time, but a lot of people really love fire hose. And I know there's a lot of people that are really going to be happy to hear, hear from you. Oh, well, it was my pleasure, man. You know, I love to, I love to share the joy, man, and there was a lot of joy there. And, uh, yeah, it still is, you know. I'm real, real proud of them records and uh, what me and Georgie did. And Mike will just, it speaks for itself. I'm real proud of it. And uh, it, it was just a privilege and honor to do that kind of work with those guys. It was just a special time. You know, and hopefully we'll be doing it again. I don't think we're done yet. I just, we never broke up. Yeah. <laughs> you just take really long breaks now. <laughs> yeah, we used to do, you know, 57 shows in 55 days. Now now we take five years off, 20 <laughs> years off in between. Right. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been a real oh, treat man, for me. Oh, man, thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Absolutely my pleasure. Yeah, for sure. Man. Right on. Take care of yourself, man. All right, Brant. What a thrill, hey? Yeah, man. You, uh, you know, you mentioned this before we went to the interview, but what really struck me, you know, while talking to Ed was you hear a lot about Rollins and his, his story of like, you know, throwing caution to the wind and getting in the van with black flag and not to take anything away from, from what he did. Cause I, I wouldn't have had the balls to do that, but I also have to give total props to Ed Crawford for having the guts to do, to do what he did, man. It's a, it's an amazing story. Yeah. He called up Watt based on a false rumor and, and went out there and basically kind of hung around. And just before he was going to leave, Firehose was formed like just yeah. like that. Whereas Rollins like auditioned and got invited. So they're both amazing stories, but you definitely got to give it to Ed. What a great story. And, I mean, Ed was, what, 20 when he did uh, that? I think he says 22 years old when during the first tour, so. Okay. But, I mean, like, still. And, as you just mentioned, how close Firehose came to not happening. Oh, yeah. I mean, Watt was, I mean, I guess he was still kind of in contact with George, but not really, right? Like, yeah. Ed brought them back. I mean, Watt credits, when you read articles about the formation of Firehose, Watt really credits like Thurston and Ed um, for getting Watt to play music again after D. Boone passed. Like, it's all, there's the Chicone Youth, uh, Sonic Youth Evol story that kind of lit a spark again for Watt. And then there's Ed Crawford, man. Well, what I did, Ryan, was I tried to come up with a little timeline because I was, I wanted to see how quickly Firehose got going. And I'm, I'm almost certain we've seen these, some of these dates, uh, but I just couldn't find them. 
But I know we've talked about most of this stuff, but just to put it in perspective, D. Boone passed away on December 22nd, 85. In early 86, I'm thinking January, February, Watt put together the ballot result compilation. In March of 86, Watt and Kira head east, so Watt can drop Kira off at Yale. And it was at that point that he goes to New York and plays on In the Kingdom number 19, the track on Evol. And then they do the Chicone Youth single. And uh, as you say, this experience kind of renewed his, I think it's fair to say, renewed his love of music. And at some point, Ed Crawford shows up on the scene. And also in 86, um, New Alliance 32, which we'll be talking about probably shortly here, the Dose LP was recorded around September of 86. And then this album was recorded in, in October of 86. So less than a year after D Boone died. Yeah. That's wild, man. Yeah. Um, there's one thing I wanted, I mean, I don't know how much you want to get into, um, history lesson part one, before we go into the record, I'm really interested in getting into the record, but just a couple of tidbits that I found that Ed did not hit on in the interview. Go, um, you know the the reason for the lowercase f in the word firehose? No, tell me. So you know the Minutemen logo logo is all uppercase, right? Right, but sorry to cut you off, but I was I f totally was mad at myself for not mentioning this when we did the ballot result episode. If you look at the type set on the ballot result album and maybe earlier than that but I note I remember noticing it on that album cover and I meant to mention it it is definitely the same typeset as the firehose logo yeah the word the word minutemen it's the firehose font yes but all oh. uppercase yes lowercase f in firehose the rest all uppercase apparently and I I dug this out of an interview with uh with uh Ed Crawford um, I can't remember how I found it in the Google machine, but apparently the lowercase F is, it's a, an intentional tribute to the Minutemen to go like all uppercase except for the F huh. apparently because, uh, not to be all uppercase like the Minutemen, just to be a little bit different. And then, um, I've always loved it. Oh yeah. I, I always, uh, sometimes I can judge how cool someone is if I do a lowercase letter at the beginning of a word and then go, Hey, just like fire hose. <laughs> then you, then you know, they're cool. Uh, yeah. I, I also mentioned too, that Watt, like Watt and Georgie were almost 10 years older than Ed, I believe something around that. And, yeah. and, uh, in the early interviews, Watt was calling Ed the kid. Right. Okay. And, uh, there's this one quote that I really like. I'm, I'm probably not going to hit it perfect, but, um, he was talking about how, they're of like a different generation, Watt and Georgie and then Ed. And he says, he don't come from T-Rex and BOC. He comes from U2 and the police. Yep. That's so, probably pretty accurate. Yeah. So I thought that yep. that was kind of a cool quote talking about, you know, the kid and how he kind of came and started up playing with Watt and George. And it happened really fast too, right? Like, yeah. um, Something like they were together three months and they were already gigging. Yeah, it's crazy. Here's the kind of 
the cream of the crop for me from the interview that I that kind of blew me away. Uh, number one, Ed Crawford had never written a song before before coming out and and getting Firehose going. And I mean, we'll get to it when we when we run through the tracks, but yeah. that's just un, unbelievable. Yeah, I know, I know. I I believe one of the questions I asked him was, did he play any? Did he ever come out and play acoustically? And he said sometimes Watt would send him out to play in memory of Elizabeth Cotton solo for an encore. And I was just thinking how unbelievable that would have been. Yeah. Because I love that song. Yeah, man. Yeah. Um, I liked how he's talking about the Flaming Telepaths tour with Sonic Youth when they were touring Sister. And what a great package that would have been because those are that's another amazing album. What a, What a tour. And I would just recommend Ryan to pe- for people to check out the Whiskey Town footage that he mentions when he was in uh, when they did the Austin City Limits. Yeah, recording in 1998. I don't know if you watched any of that, but it's really good. Yeah, I saw a few clips there. Yep. Yeah, and Ed's doing some vocals too, some yep. backing vocals. Ryan, let's talk about this record, man. Yeah, I've been waiting 78 episodes to talk about this record. History Lesson, Part 2. One thing I have to say right off the bat, Ryan, before we get into this, I found, I don't know about you, but I had a really hard time kind of capturing my thoughts. Probably the hardest I've had, and which is odd because I know this record better than almost anything we've listened to other than maybe My War. I just have such a deep love for this album. I Maybe I didn't want to... I, I kind of didn't want to analyze it, maybe. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it was hard for me too, but mostly just because I just like, I like singing along like really loud to this record. Oh just, yeah. You know? <laughs> I got this when I was like 20 at a really pivotal moment in my life when I was, you know, away from home and I had it on a cassette tape and I had a tape player in my car that automatically flipped the tape over. Oh, those are sweet. Yeah. And I just, it just played this album on a loop for like six months straight, probably. Yeah. And there's, I was, just, I was just obsessed with this album. Yeah. And there's not a bad second on the entire album. No. Like what a day, de- what a debut album, man. Like probably, I can't think of a debut album that's as good as yeah. this one. And you know, I, I also went, like I listened to a few other records by them this week, like Ifin and From Ohio, Flying the Flannel. And Mr. Machinery, I guess that's all of them. And uh, I mean, this one really stands out as being solid, start, finish. Like just, yeah. there's not a dud. There's not a bad second on it. Any, no, anywhere you start on this record. And it is a great record to listen to side A, flip it over. And then once side B is done, flip it right back over, you know? Yeah, man. Yep. Well, let's let's get into it. So we've got Side Ed. Starts with Brave Captain, written by Watt and Crawford. Number one, like, I was air drumming to Georgie, like, the whole time I listened to this. (laughs) That's pretty hard. That's hard to do. (laughs) Yeah. I have to mention uh, the Santa Cruz Streets of Fire video that came out in 1989. Which was, yeah, Natus Copas, who skates not only to this song... Uh, but Coolidge by the Descendants and uh, I think Windmilling maybe. 
maybe sometimes I can't remember, but it's all up on YouTube. But the 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 opening clip with him skating to this track is just iconic. It's like right when ski, street skating was really coming to the coming to prominence in skateboarding, and he does all these insane tricks like uh, wall rides. He does his fav, famous fire hydrant spin. He does all these really cool no comply tricks and. The best thing about it is right when it goes to the chorus, it, which and it slows down, they go yeah, to slow mo yeah. picks, yeah, yeah. and he like does a handrail in it, and in the one scene he like hits a launch ramp and goes up over top of a jeep and does like a rail slide <laughs> on the on the roll bar of a jeep and stuff. <laughs> That's yeah. so sick! Wow. Yeah, and not Nottis was like everybody's favorite skater, right? Because he ripping it up on the street he had a wicked graphic and ryan not as a satan spelled backwards <laughs> yeah <laughs> so badass did you watch the uh the fire hose video for this song? yeah i've seen that a few times yeah out in that old outdoor amphitheater yep it's all overgrown and stuff that streets of fire had a bunch of sst vans on it black flags on it descendants blast who were heavily associated with with Santa Cruz skateboards, uh, Sonic Youth, Minuteman, Blind Idiot God, Idiot God, Swa, Gone, and then a bunch of fire hoses on there, Brave Captain, Hear Me, Windmilling, and Sometimes. So the video, what what I thought um, was cool, like it's it's kind of an iconic fire hose look too, right? You've got yeah. George with the see-through drums. He's got his unit just going everywhere. Uh, Ed, Are you talking about his McSqueeb? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Ed's got that black telly. That's like yep. a, like an '80s telly, kind of. Yeah. Uh, Watt's got the telly bass, and he's rocking. I'm pretty sure uh, what was known as in the '80s a badass bridge on that bass with oh yeah with jazz and P bass pickups, which I think are EMG, and this is yeah. like. One thing about this record for me is like Watt was hinting at this in the later days of Minutemen, but he's like full Watt on this record. And he never looks back after this record yeah. in terms of his playing, right? Oh, yeah, man. This is, well, that thing's the Thunderbroom that he's playing, man. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And he's, fl he's flying the flannel flying the in the flannel. video, too. Yep. Yeah. The great, the thing I love about this song, though, is, I mean, it's a great tune, but the outro like the last 20 seconds or so. Yeah. And, yeah. and then Watt kind of, he kind of ends the song on that high note. And it's just, yeah. it's just like, oh my God, that was so. They do a lot of great outros on this. Yeah. yeah. I, I love like a good outro. Yeah. Oh, There's yeah. a few of them. Yeah. It's great. Um, this is de de definitely the, the right opening song. This is the one they did the promo seven inch for as well. Yeah. Do you have that? Because there's dead wax on it. I've got it. Okay, save that dead wax for the end, okay? Dead wax is saved. Roger that. Okay. Okay, what's next, Brent? Under the Influence of Meat Puppets. Woo. It's a Kira, Kira Watt co-write, and there's a few of those on this album. Uh, number one, Wicked Title. Yep. Do you think this song has a Meat Puppets influence? I was kind of hoping you didn't ask that question because I mean, I got to be honest and like we've, we've hinted at this before, but you're, 
well, we haven't hinted at it. You're a way bigger Meat Puppets fan than I am. Way bigger. I'm a medium to low medium. I like I like this song better than any Meat Puppets. And I would say that there is there's some, but you're the better judge of whether this is Meat Puppets-esque than I am. I don't really think it is. It, it's an awesome song, though. Yeah. Uh, this one is <laughs> Watt in full effect, man. Like when he does that big blob. Do you know what part I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Like the big finger pop? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I love the pops on this, but I also love when uh, the string noise, when he's going, rum, 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 like that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of good yeah. string noise there. I love that part. And Georgie, yeah. he's starting to show us in this song in particular, all of his new splash cymbals. <laughs> yeah, this one for me is jazzier than anything the Minutemen ever did. Than the Minutemen? Yeah. Mm, I suppose so. I think so. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, it's funny, like a lot of people would say the Minutemen were funky. They were yeah. funky. They they were more funky than jazzy. I agree. But I think that Firehose is funky as well and maybe that's what you're getting at there's a bit of funky but jazz too right yeah the the drums in particular yeah, yeah. Are, are are jazzy this one so in case people don't know we've mentioned dose a few times so and i think i'm wondering well so parts of this song and especially the ending come from a dose track called number three which is on the dose LP. And what track number is number three? I don't know what track number it is, but that's the name of the song. <laughs> all all of the all of the dose songs have song titles, except for the ones that they repurposed for Firehose. And I'm wondering if they did that intentionally. So maybe like I'm pretty sure Ed mentions that the Watt was mixing the Dose album while Firehose was was getting going. So yeah. maybe that maybe they knew they were going to use these songs and that's why they didn't title them as dose songs so they wouldn't have two song titles. Do you know what I mean? I do. And by the way, song number 3, yep, is track number 6. Okay. On the on the dose record. So there that might actually support your theory. Okay. Well, that that is my theory. It just <laughs> <laughs> We'll see. Maybe it's another theory shot to shit, but um they do there i believe from one comes one which is on the next album is another dose track that they repurpose off of this album and it also has a number so yeah under the influence of meat puppets great tune though yeah it's killer even if you're not a big fan of meat puppets yep track three it matters another kira watt uh, co-write that one's this one's funky and th this one to me sounds a bit more like the minute mint yeah, and Watt is soloing over the whole thing, yeah. the whole time. Yeah. And the the thing that I love, I've always loved about this song is, like, there's a lot of, well, maybe there's not a lot. I don't know. It sounds like there are lots of tracks on these records, like um, multi-tracks yeah. on, on this record. And Ed's solo on this record, when he's just hitting that one note, and then all of a sudden, like, three or four guitars come on playing that same note. Awesome. Track four, Chemical Wire. That's just a, a Watt solo 
solo writing credit. Definitely one of the hits, I would say. At least it, it always was for us. We always loved this song. This I've me- I've mentioned this before, but I had a friend who thought it was a horn. The <laughs> he thought that was a trumpet. Yeah. yeah, it's the it's the very first firehose song I ever heard. Oh, really? This one for sure. Someone put it on a compilation tape for me. It'd be a good one to hear first. Yeah, it's also got. Um, not only does it have like wicked bass cording and bass harmonics on it, it also has an epic ending outro on it as well. Yeah. Where it just kind of like crashes down. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it does have a cool, cool outro. Track five, another theory shot to shit written by Watt. Uh, this one is another repurposed Doe song that, the Dose song is just called Number Four. And this one has a total Watt lyric, man. From this machinery, hums come. Oh, yeah. Tightness meshing, engaging, releasing. Yeah, this track has got one of the most intense chord progressions on a Firehose record. Like, it's it's awesome. And by yeah. the way, that song Number Four on the Dose record is actually track number two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what, do you know what, uh, what track, uh, number, the song number two from the Dose album is? No. Number four. Okay. (laughs) 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 Yeah. More bass harmonics in this one too, which I like. Yeah. Track six, On Your Knees, Hurley Watt. Uh, or sorry, Hurley Crawford, Hurley, uh, Georgie does the lyrics for this one. I love the way this one shifts gears into the ending part of the song. Uh, the, like, do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. No, no, no. I, I know exactly what you mean. This one is, this one's like, this is an intense song, man. Like yeah. a lot of these songs are really intense. This one in particular. Yeah. And Ed can sing on this song. Oh yeah, man. The next one, Locked In, Kira Watt. This is an all-time favorite for me. The The ending, speaking of classic endings, when they when they rock out at the end and and they do the in the final moment part is just gives me the chills every time I hear it. That sure. is one that I, I, I don't care where I am and who's in the room, I'm belting that part out. Yeah, killer yeah. outro. Yeah. And I, I also like there's uh, um, there's a bit of an echo guitar effect that works really well in the song too yeah i mean i mean it's like you almost wonder like ed i guess ed must have really been woodshedding in his bedroom before he came out there because the dude can play and i know he's kind of downplaying how well he can play but uh i don't know he's pretty damn good yeah man Flip it over, side, more Ed. Started out with an all-time classic, The Candle and and the Flame. This is a Crawford Watt track. Ed does the lyrics for it. Love the lyrics. This one has the Spanish guitar in it. You know, it's funny that Ed does all the vocals on the album. No, No Watt, anywhere to be found. This one just has a beautiful... Uh, vocal by Ed. The harmonies on the chorus are just unbelievable. Oh, in the background, the echoey kind of, yeah, no, I know. Awesome. Love the lyrics. I'd put it in my pocket if I thought it would fill it. Put it in my heart if I thought I believed it. The lyrics on the back of this album are really hard to read. Agreed. And they're not, they're they're also not 100% accurate. 
I've never read them. I, like I have my own lyrics for this album and I don't want to spoil it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. But I mean, I, I did go through the pain of kind of like rotating the record. I've done it a couple of times, to be honest. And you, you're kind of like, what? That's not what he says. Yeah. It, I don't want to know. Yeah. I don't want to know. I want to stick with my own lyrics. <laughs> it's going to be wrapped up like a douche and other loner in the night. Forever, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, track two, choose any memory written solely by Ed. This one's maybe a little Beatlesque, almost. Yeah. Amazing backing vocals too. Again. Yeah. There is awesome footage of this, like them, like miming to this song on some cable access show and Watts again, flying the flannel and just doing that big Watt grin and Ed's just tossing that McSqueeb around on his, that he's got attached to his head. Oh, Georgie is, you mean? Or yeah, George. Yeah. It's pretty awesome footage. It's a really good song though. Oh yeah. Track three on side two, perfect pairs. This one's Kira, Watt, Crawford. For me, this is one of the weaker tracks. I still like it, but it's not as essential as, as the other tracks. Although I did note there's a definite D Boone influence on the guitar solo. Yeah. I like the middle section in particular on this one. I always wondered whether, I mean, I think I'm just guessing. I mean, the reason that it's not a favorite, um, of yours, I mean, it's not, I guess it's not, you know, a favorite of mine. I still think it's a, an awesome song. Oh yeah. I wouldn't, I would never skip past it. Don't no, get me wrong. No, no, exactly. But I wonder if it's because it kind of has a bit of a disco feel. Yeah. It's the ding, 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 ding. So, so here's the thing though. I mean, it's called perfect pairs. I have no idea what your lyrics are to this song, but I wonder if, um, the perfect pairs is, I mean, a lot of the bass playing is all octaves, hey? Pairs of the same oh, yeah. notes. So I don't know if that's what it is. Maybe. I'm not going to tell you what the actual lyrics are, though, because I don't want to ruin your lyrics. Please don't. Yeah, Please I won't. Don't. How about this? Man, what a track. Oh. Uh, just really beautiful song. So much heart in Ed's voice. Like, to think that this guy, you know, had never written a song before and pulls this out of his ass is just phenomenal to me. The thing that always strikes me when this song comes around, and I listened to this record a ton this week, and I'm glad I did. And the, But the thing that always grabs me is like, this song right here in on this record is a testament to good sequencing on a record. For sure, yeah. Right? Oh yeah, this is a side two track, for yeah. sure. A yeah. deep cut, yeah. Yeah, this is like... This is the exact perfect moment for this type of song. And then yeah. it's the exact perfect moment for the next song coming out of this one. Yeah. I tend to think of side two of this as the more melancholy side of the album for sure. Cause it's got the candle in the flame, this track and another one, which we'll be getting to, but the next one is called, what do you, do you say Karams? Maybe. Yeah. I don't know what that word means, but it's a Hurley Crawford rewrite again. Georgie wrote the lyrics. It's got a really funky bass line from Watt. Again, uh, the little instro breaks that kind of act as the chorus in this one are really great. Yeah, this again, like this record and this song, it's just showing like this is Watt fully realized, you know? Yeah. He's he's all in. Yeah. And it's, uh, we're 
it's what a shame if the guy stopped playing music. Oh man. Oh. Well that, you know, that was never going to happen. I don't think like. No, I know. But he had to mourn in his own way. Right. Yeah. Uh, the next track is a pretty famous one relating dudes to jazz. Uh, this is the, tra- this is Kira Watt. This is the one that when you and I were first starting this, I suggested a lyric from this as the name of our podcast, two dudes talking. Yeah, it turns out that perhaps people may have liked that name better. (laughs) (laughs) Just Jordan Schwartz. Yeah, yeah, I know. Hey, Jordan, Jordan, it's okay if you don't want to know Mojack, man. I still want to know Mojack. Now, do you think he's talking about Raymond Pettibone in this song? I've always thought that. Yeah, me too. It's a story about Watt, like, cruising around with Ray, like, getting into trouble, running around, you know? Yeah. Now this, this one reminds me of the red and the black. And I wonder if they weren't trying to do their own version of that maybe because this one has them trading off solos and then George doing some gnarly little drum fills in it, just like the red and the black has. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Could definitely see that. I love that part though, where they're trading off. Oh yeah. This is going to be a hellish hell ride to pick the ballot result on this record. Yeah. Well, I could pick any one of these songs, but, and then the final track, another, uh, it's called things could turn around Kira Watt, another really nice melancholy track to close out the album. This is, uh, just another stunning vocal from Ed. And yeah, I, I stand by my words. One of the greatest debut albums by any band ever. Yeah. Period. This track is also like the perfect, perfect ending to an insane LP, like as a package, right? Yeah. All goes to the sequencing. Awesome. Can't say enough. Can't say enough. Let's talk about uh, some other stuff about the record though, like the jacket. Okay. Well, there's a house burning down on the cover. Yeah. I guess well, it's a fire that's raging full on. <laughs> yeah. Good guess. Yeah. yeah. What gave it away? <laughs> And then we've got <laughs> a uh, a boyish picture of Ed from Ohio, as he's credited. And then instead of pictures of George and Mike, we've got their gear. We've got uh, the Thunder Broom there, leaned up against a couple of like Ampeg cabinets with fire hose stenciled on them. Yeah, they must have full, been full in fire hose by the time... This record yep. came out if you're stenciling it on there. Do you see the spray paint cans? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's pretty fresh for the album cover. It might be, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Those and, some, uh, speaking the, of gnarly, those are some gnarly mattresses. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well used. Yeah. Woo. The, the back cover is, well, we, we referenced it, but all the info and then the lyrics are all written in like a bit giant kind of, pyramid deal with and then there's the fire hose f when you get to the middle yeah it says welcome aboard this and all future fire hose records is dedicated to d boone yep and then it uh it gives the credits and then the lyrics uh trying to read them on this jacket will make you go dizzy we should say this was recorded by i'm not sure if ed mentions this or not but it was recorded at radio tokyo by ethan james yeah 29 hours between 
1014 and 1027 of 1986. 24 tracks. Let's do that dead wax, Ryan. There's no dead wax on the vinyl of the LP, but on the LP label, there is a picture. Right. I don't know if you know that one. Yep. It's uh, it's it looks like I would say it's a baseball player. Yeah. Um, landing on one of the bags with Ed Crawford's telly, kind of copy and pasted on it, and someone's face. I don't know whose it is. That's about as good of a analysis as I could provide for that. So, <laughs> yeah, and no dead wax. But let's uh, the promo single. I don't know if we mentioned this before, but the promo singles on SST, they were given like a different type of catalog number, which kind of tracked with it's this one is P SST promo SST. Yeah, and uh, it says from the forthcoming Ragin' Full On SST forty nine. Uh, it's and it also says for promotional use only. Damn it! Also says that on the label. And then uh, let's see what tracks on the B side, Ryan. I don't know if we mentioned that. Brave Captain and Perfect Pairs. Hmm. Interesting choice for the B side. Interesting. Yeah, I agree. All right. So here we go. What does it say? So side A, the dead wax says direct yet vague. And then okay, the B side is a long one. Here we go. Blast it, Spock. I'm a doctor, not an actor. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. All right. Now for the hard part. Ballot result. Is this, Ryan, the only chance we're going to get to put one of these tracks into the ballot result? I don't think there's any Firehose comps. I think this is it. Oh, like Firehose tracks on a, on a subsequent compilation? Well, off of this album, like mm -hmm. maybe you know, off of we've... maybe off of SST Acoustic, or is that maybe. is that Elizabeth Cotton? Maybe. Hang on. But what I'm saying is, like the Minutemen have like introducing the Minutemen, the post-merch comps. There's nothing like that with Firehose. You know what I'm saying? I do. You are correct. And on SST Acoustic, which is SST two. 76 the the firehose track is in memory of elizabeth cotton and i bet mm. you i bet you that's the only one that i at least the only one i can think of where firehose is at so you're probably right this is it oh <laughs> man we have to choose very very carefully then make it a good one well the obvious let's let's talk this through okay the obvious choice would be brave captain agreed right it's the most iconic track off the album. It is a killer song. The first five seconds of this song do it every time. Yeah. Like they're just that, that like Ed playing the telly that way is awesome. What, if it wasn't Brave Captain, what would be your pick? Ooh. Ay, ay, ay. Oh my God. I can't, uh, might be on your knees. Oh yeah, yeah. Or maybe locked in, maybe locked. It would be it would be locked in for me. Yeah, maybe locked yeah. in. It's so good. Yeah. Oh. Well, you know what the thing about the ballot result is, Ryan. It's not a real compilation tape. It's just imaginary, so we can still just listen to this album, over and over and over. Yeah. 
Oh yeah. Where, you know, like this will be an album I will want to hear on my deathbed if I'm afforded the opportunity <laughs> to pick an album. So, well, usually at the end of an episode, when we record, I immediately start listening to next week's record right. and, and I'm going to do that tonight, but right before that, I'm going to listen to this record again. <laughs> Great idea. Great idea. <laughs> um, I don't know. I still think that like Brave Captain is probably the right one to put on. I'm cool with that. Okay. Let's do that. What, okay. an, what an insane album. I can't wait to get to If and and From Ohio. Can't wait. Yeah, me too. Oh my me God. Me too, man. You know what? Like Flying the Flannel is a excellent album too. It's a shame we won't get to talk about that. Like Mr. Machinery Operator is for me is way spottier than the first four records. It's still good though. I yeah. still listen to it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like no yeah. doubt. But I mean, what's better, Flying the Flannel or Mr. Machinery Operator? Oh, Flying the Flannel's way better. Yeah. But... Case closed. Yeah. Case closed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Ryan. What's next week? Next week we've got Sonic Youth back with us. It's SST eighty. The Sonic Youth 12-inch EP, Star Power. And we've got a special guest, Brant. Right. So I kind of alluded to this maybe last week when I was spieling about our guests. So on some of these episodes we're coming up on, we're getting to the era of the 12-inch single. I mean, we've seen a few of those, I think, maybe. But there's going to be a bunch of them coming and some comps. We're going to try to have guests for those episodes to keep it keep it fun and exciting. Because, you know... There's only so much we, we can talk about, and we've kind of covered most of that stuff already. So, Whoa, Brent, it's, it's episode 80. Do you know how many times we're going to have that problem and not going to be able to get a guest? Don't set us up for failure, man. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's great. Who's coming on? Uh, his name's Michael Whitaker. So he worked at the label for for quite some time and it's a really really interesting interview i think everyone's going to really like it so tune in next week please for michael whitaker and one more time ryan thanks to ed crawford for being our guest hey everyone thanks for listening you can find us on facebook instagram twitter tumblr all at mojack pod we post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show our blog is mojackpod.com please check it out for some exclusive content if you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.